G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'd like to kick off by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the lands on where we're recording today's podcast. I wanted to say that I bloody well missed you guys last week. I'm sorry we didn't get an episode out. I was over in New Zealand as part of the Australian Rural Leadership Program and I thought I was going to be good enough to juggle these things, but time got away from me and I was just trying to do way too many things. So I decided I'd push last week's episode and when it actually came to recording a chat with someone else as part of our November conversations, to be honest, wasn't really in the headspace to do it. So we just sat down, had a coffee in the sun and checked in on each other instead. This week, I'm sitting down with a man who is a huge advocate for mental health. Or on that topic, if you haven't donated or checked out the Moe's on our November page, check it out via the link in our show notes. My next guest is Brendan McGee. He's an agronomist with elders. He reckons his little pocket of Bow Desert in Queensland could well be one of the greatest spots in Australia to be an agronomist. Brendan's journey began. He left university, went into working in the racehorse industry, but Today he finds himself in the paddocks and he just absolutely loves working with his clients and colleagues. He understands the challenges that come with farming in Australia and he wants to see the conversations around mental health shift. And well, he's one fella that is doing his fair share to. He's part of the Elders Wellbeing Committee and he started up Mental Health Mondays which is all about getting the conversations going, wearing a funky work shirt and making sure that he's supporting not just his colleagues but also his clients as well because ultimately mental health and mentally healthy people is a responsibility that all of us can play a role in being a part of. hope you guys enjoy this chat because I love sitting down with Brendan. You might have a few little sound challenges, but that's what you get when you've got someone sitting in a ute on the side of a crop and another in the office in Sydney. Enjoy the chat. Where are you joining us from today, Brendan? No, I'm in a paddock of barley at the moment that's going to chop for dairy cows in Bow Desert. So, yeah, Bow Desert, what, an hour from the Gold Coast, an hour from Brisbane, surrounded by uh, border ranges on one side and Gold Coast Inland on the other side and then run into the lovely valleys and of Boona and Kelba. What's it like to have that as your office every day? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty smooth. You're close enough to town, but you're not in town and, like, I'm 20 minutes out of Bow Desert and I could be anywhere in the world and it's sort of quiet, peaceful, easy and you get a bit sport when you look at Bow Desert and it's still very country feel and you still get the odd milkers that walk across the road and you have to stop for them and things like that. Very rural but yeah, very, very close to being metropolitan area. It's like when we were chatting the other day, it's probably like the second God's country behind that beautiful pocket just west of Geelong. You're close to the Surf Coast Shire. Close to Melbourne if you want to go to the footy, uh, but good, productive country as well. That's exactly right. We've probably got a bit bit better climate, probably a little bit closer. Like you've got Gold Coast and you travel the world and you see places and someone goes, you get to a, into the, in America and then they go, oh, you got to go to Florida and see the beach. We got, go down to down to the pier in um, Santa Monica. And, oh, it's the best beach in the world. And you're like, I've traveled. 16 hours on a plane to see a subpar beach that you wouldn't swim at. Yeah. And I've got a beach that's 45 minutes from my house. And you're like, yeah, we're pretty spoiled. So tell me, how did you end up in that Bow Desert area? Is it, has it always been home? No. So I grew up a little place called Capella, Central Highlands of Queensland. Mum and dad uh, have two and a half thousand acres there. And fuck, it's a 
Prickle Farm is what the old fella calls it. Next door is 30,000 acres and I think the smallest place on the smallest paddock on that farm's close to 3,000 acres. So you're, you're looking at a very, very small farm in some big country up there. But mum and dad's still up there, brothers up there. We do Angus and Brangus under the oh, St. Amir Angus and BJ Brangus up there. I left home or went to boarding school in Toowoomba at grammar there at grade eight, 96, and did the natural progression down the hill to Gatton to, to do uni and then got offered a job when I left uni to run my, uh, the in-laws horse stud here in Bow Desert. Did that for seven years from 2004 to 2011 when I joined Elvis. So yeah. And so like, going down the pathway, like I, I just want to backstep just a, a tiny bit, well, actually quite a bit. That that in, early interest in agriculture, what was like? What's your earliest memory around ag? We were fortunate enough, and like mum and dad bought Saint Amir, and like, it was ninety five. But before that, grandparents' farm out there with, with Santas, and it's always been something that we've always done. I remember as a kid, you always go out, and mum and dad always had lease country and adjusted cattle like mum and dad were contract masters with Stanbroke back in the 80s so you sort of grow up with it like being a, being a kid growing up in CQ through the 90s yeah that was probably hard years drought wise fortunate enough that very very rich coal fields within central Highlands, it was in Peak Down Shire it was able to sustain the community my dad works for, worked for BHP for 25 years on the side as well. So it's brothers of all make it with VMA now. It's fantastic that you sort of had that. You look back and you see how fortunate we were. I went to private school and mum and dad, we never well, we never went without. We wouldn't say we were overly like privileged. But yeah, you look at what we were provided with as kids and yeah, very, very fortunate. And so it was always going to be finish up at school and get straight into university and agriculture degree from a very young age i've had cattle very very played a very big part of our lives like mum and dad still well they show cattle and very very big in the uh, young judges and that they help out a lot with the capella state high school still with um, providing cattle so it was always a natural progression that when i left school i was basically stock and station agent was pretty much where i was headed headed but yeah went to uni and sort of didn't really fit the sort of uni lifestyle was probably more fun than work for me and it didn't really end well I, I knew where I was going but yeah then like we even when I finished uni and I went to AMH then to work in the meatworks and I pushed beef in the back back there and sort of had aspirations to get into the sort of meat industry through the sort of progression but yeah, like I say, I was offered an opportunity to go run the now in-laws. So for you, when you moved there, you were you moved back to to manage the horse stud, as you, as you said. Like, was was it conflicting in terms of you had these dreams of the stock and station agent building a career in the meat industry? And I'm not uh, going to say you you jumped way left, but you you've gone down the horse industry path. Yeah, look, it's it's weird which way you like the doors that open and close and things like that and then i'm um, six two and 110 kilos and when i tell people that my grandfather was an amateur jockey it's, it's sort of like dad's always had race horses like we grew up and dad had race horses on the side and you used to rock pick the fruit the straight and 
do the at, on the old dirt courses at Capella and places like that, and drag horses around to around Central Highlands to race on a weekend and things like that. It's I I loved it, and when we were kids, and like some of my earliest memories are going to races with Granddad or going to races with Dad. It's yeah, pretty pretty cool. And when I got the opportunity to run a farm, and like yeah, father-in-law said, well, I've just had a manager. You look like you're hanging around. <laughs> you want to have a crack at running this, and it was, yeah, you know, it was only twenty acres. We built up sixty acres and sixty horses, and had like oh, six, six horses in work most of the time. It was really good. Like a brother-in-law and father-in-law, we all trained the horses together, and had a couple of people working for us. It was really good to, I don't know, to run something as your own. And yeah, you you look back and. At one stage, we were running a 20, 25% strike rate around country tracks, and you're like, we're pretty good at it. Like, it, don't get me wrong, but, yeah, you take your money and have a bet on a few, and there is days where we, classic example, we took a horse to Roma in a one-day trip, which is about six hours, to find out that it doesn't like dust. It was a $2 favourite. She's a long, sobering six-hour trip home when you've done your money on the on the punt. So, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't bet. change it for quids, but, yeah. <laughs> so how did the transition come about from that role into then becoming part of the elders crew well at that stage i would have been mid-20s and i was the the old traditional we wife and i got married relatively young by the time 2011 rolled around we had two girls and the there's a little bit of a decline in the horse industry and father-in-law we sort of he wasn't in his best health and he sort of like the job you'd sort of nailed down to 24 7 and it's a yeah it's it's a it isn't like like milking cows it's like doing a farmer so trying to get a little bit more freedom with the kids and when when it, when we said okay we're going to sell it was a moment of sadness but a bit of a relief at the same time where you'd have that transition of okay well let's see what's going to happen a lot of the first like 12 months i was like everyone goes oh what do you miss what do you miss and i was like fast horses and foals and i said they don't happen too often that you have a, a fast horse that you're happy to drag around to the races and now you've got something good and the foals they're only really cool for about two weeks before they start biting striking and all the other stuff happens with them so coming to elders and everyone, like it was a i i'm an agronomist now but i was fortunate enough to land a role in elders they were advertising a job right about the same time we sold up and there was actually job going another one of the resellers they said oh no we've got someone for that and I'm on the way home I just pulled into Elvis and said oh you had a job going a couple of weeks ago and it's not advertising anymore did you find anyone they said oh no we haven't we're still looking for someone the interest and I said oh yeah come back for an interview and fortunate enough to get a job and it was just a front desk real sales officer or whatever they call the job just an in-house sort of salesperson just doing answering the phones and started that way and then I through my contacts within sort of the horse industry within Bodeza and knew a bit about the nutrition and things like that from my uni days, subjects that I did well at. And like at one stage, we were looking after anywhere from three quarters of a million dollars to a million dollars of horse feed going through the shop. That was where my niche was. And it was, I was like, this is really cool. And then the, there was another decline in the horse industry and a couple of the big clients sort of exited. And I sort of, I don't know, it was... The, the, uh, I like I like I like the chase. I like doing deals, and it was sort of wasn't there. And I got offered by Graham Page, and he head of 
pecked in um, Australia for ag. He said, oh, would you be interested in becoming an agronomist? We can finish you off your, your uni degree and sort of get you of, um, a diploma in agronomy. And I jumped at the opportunity to do that. And very, very grateful that Pagey gave me the chance and Elvis gave me the chance to sort of develop my career a bit more, which now is, yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't change it for quid. I want to ask you, I'm going to backflip slightly here, but do you look back on that, the potential pressure that came with being in your in-laws, so in a family business? Yeah, do you look do you look back and think, God, you're lucky that that decision was made to sell that business so you could move on to something else? Oh, for sure. And, and you, you look at it now and it's like, don't get me wrong, when it, when it happened, you, you're in those two sort of camps of the relief of that was our home and you're at a point where it's it's i'm like we we live both on the farm my in-laws still live on the same property that i do they live on the other end of my pool so we're still really really close and it's fantastic that we're still so close considering my family a thousand kilometers away it's just that option that i don't know if someone's busy there's always ma's always there to pick up kids from school and things like that it's yeah i yes i i did enjoy working with the in-laws and with my father-in-law and it we've had don't worry we had we had massive disagreements with but, <laughs> but it's, it's like any fa- any any family in ag and you, you deal with it oh, i deal with a couple of brothers and siblings and things like that it's like boys go and have it out because guess what you've all got to come home for tea you're all going to come to christmas i said as bad as it is there's probably no hr out there <laughs> so, yeah you just got to get out get out of your system because you're all going to get along because you've all got the same last name you've all got to come home to eat because mum wants to feed you so it's it is and that's pretty much what it was it was like you'd have it out and you'd be like next day you'd turn up and like, right yeah okay continue with life it's <laughs> i'm i'm grateful and i've always been grateful of what we've oh, what like opportunities have been given and never really now in life not looking back and saying well i missed that opportunity you you look at sort of through glasses of sort of well yes i missed that opportunity but if i like if we didn't decide to sell the farm i wouldn't be talking to you i might be training group one winners but i I wouldn't be talking to you but yeah it's it's one of those things and and you don't look back and go well what could have been you just play the cards you dealt and keep moving forward Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. I think for you, you can, well, we might have bumped into each other anyway, but who knows. But for you, it's, it's, it's one of those things of perspective and experiences that shape you. And, and I want to ask you about like the role of mentors, because you came into elders mm-hmm. and you mentioned Pagey before, but like what role do, did mentors have yeah. for you as a, I'll say it, like a, not an older fella, but like you're, you're coming in where there's people straight out of uni coming into roles and you're actually very experienced, but needing to learn the ropes. Oh, exactly. Like the old fella. My old man jokes and he says, oh, you've come in every time at 27 to get a real job. 
<laughs> Very funny, old fella. But yeah, I yeah. Even when I had horses, I was never too scared to ask someone that had already tre- tre- like treaded that path. So if I had a horse that was tying up or was hanging out, there was a couple of old trainers in there that you'd go and approach, and like they are been training for forty years. You could have had ten horses that have had that same problem over that time, and in my time, I'd had one. Go and say, right. I've got this horse that's doing this. And you go, oh, I had one. I had one mare in the 70s that did this, and I gave her that. And I had one mare the other year that had this and did that. And you're like, sweet, I don't, I've got two options straight away. I'm not trying to find a thing. So when I come to Elders, I was fortunate enough to have oh, a couple of people that really, really supported me, like um, oh, Karen Bond is now with Air, but she was one of the tech for animal suppliers. And I doing my horse stuff then in that side of the business, she backed me straight in and she told me like yep you're good at the job just do this this and this and it was sort of okay when you're with the elders these are the systems that we play and then when marie crawford joined the business i think it's eight years ago now and um, i was always not shy to ask them how and why they got where they are and things like that so it's a lot of people see people that are in especially in corporate structures that are a couple of rungs and above them that as unapproachable and things like that and then I, I i find that if you treat people kind nice and equally you get a lot out of it so i was never shy to like bring pagey or even jamie brogan when he was still in a real product thing it was talking to those blokes they they've been around a long time and it's yeah you, you you find where the structures are and that they sort of use to make themselves better and things like that so yeah i hope that graduates that i have or the sort of younger agronomists underneath me that sort of i'm always open for for forthcoming because yeah is if everyone learns together everyone moves forward in the same direction instead of holding secrets i don't think that really works in a in a company let alone a corporate and has that been a a big shaper in terms of your role now here we are 11 odd years down the track with elders you're uh, you mentioned at the beginning chatting to graduates and when you're not getting them to turn on their cameras, uh, you are playing <laughs> a bit of a mentoring role with them as well. My company has been, been around for 180 odd years. The bloke that opened the door on the first day still isn't, he's not with us today. So yes, you can, you can leave a imprint in a pink shirt, but there's always going to be someone that takes your job. And if you're good at doing your job, you should be able to teach someone to do the things that you do. And I'm a big team person and like I play a lot of sport and things like that. And if you lead from the front and you make your weakest link, the strongest link, you're always going to be better off. So it's dragging people along for that, that journey with you instead of trying to do it one out. I think it makes a massive amount of difference. How do you do that like in practice? Like in terms of what are some of the examples that you've used or have done to actually be able to lift others? And I, I, yeah, well, I've, I've got a fellow I who think... talks about putting wind under people's wings, and I, I love that analogy. It's how do you create that wind? So I, I was listening to Adam Hills one night, and he was doing a stand-up show, and he talks about inflator or deflator, and it's if you've got a balloon, you want to inflate it because it's that's where a balloon's happy and all this sort of stuff. And if you're a deflator, you're just going around popping balloons, and no one will actually rise to be on your sort of level or above, and it sort of hit with me and like with uh, you talk about like another little saying is like for every dark cloud there's usually a rainbow and things like that it's i don't know i'm a positive person my wife hates it because i'm overly positive i f- 
find that the things you spend three hours worrying about aren't the things that are going to knock you down on a Monday at 4am in the morning that is actually worthwhile worrying about. So it's trying to be positive all the time and get those people, lift them up. So I was fortunate enough to have a very, very good graduate with me who's now my, as you say, co-worker or colleague, she, uh, Georgia, she's a 22-year-old girl first job in ag and straight out of uni and you're like okay what is a we've been 36 year old like gonna instill on 22 year old girl and sort of we we work really really well together she's super focused and it's just trying to build her up and she'll come to me i'm like mate you're good enough to do this job you're better at paperwork than i am i need i'm training you up to be my replacement because if if i want to go somewhere like on holidays and that you've got to you got to look after this book and she's like but I, I don't want to stuff it up. Do it all like you'd run it. And this is even during the graduate program. It's like, I'll check it off, but you run these clients. And I gave her clients from an early point that sort of she'd look after. And it's trying to develop or build confidence in people. Is I think it's only I've only heard about it recently is the imposter syndrome. And you see people turn up that are overqualified for a job, but don't open their mouth because they don't want to rock the boat or they don't want to, seem that they've got the wrong answer it's like, and i i think the only way you can do that and it's it may be not the perfect way to teach is throw people in the deep end but just give them like i don't know one floaty so they know you're sort of you're there and you're not going to completely sink to the bottom of the pool run it like it's your own and i think that's even when i was doing horses at but i was i was always told run it like it's your own and we'll just tell me how you're going to do it before you do it and it's it makes you grow very, very quickly. And the other thing is it's trying to make sure if you don't know, tell your client you don't know and just ring someone because everyone in a pink shirt is happy to help you. And even to the point where anyone in ag is happy to help you. So, yeah, I don't know if that's answered your question all, but yeah. Have you always had that level of vulnerability in terms of willing to just go? Like the, it's a thing with this whole fake it till you make it thing. Like I actually just don't see it at all because I'm nothing like that in terms of, if, if I don't know, like, I'm just like, you know, I actually have no idea. I don't know where to start, but has that, have you, have you always no. had that level of vulnerability or not? No, look, I, I went to boarding school. It was terrible. Homesick first six months. It was like the worst place. And you sort of get into the groove and things like that. And then it was after that, it was like fantastic. I wouldn't change it for the world. The, the, the context and the people that I know that I went through school with, there's still people I can talk to. And then when I went to uni, it was sort of this whole sort of, out of the structure still in the structure and we were failing doesn't worry me if that makes sense it i i will always try to do my best i i got through school i got mediate oh and okay i think i got 15 or 16 and op so enough to get me into uni and do what i want to do but once i got to uni i'd sort of it was unstructured for me and i was sort of lost because it was yeah you go to uni and it's like oh take a lecture whatever and sort of i'm 18 it's I'm playing football at one stage. I think it was football six days a week. And it was, I, I had too much fun at uni. It didn't do enough work. And it just, uni didn't suit me. And I ended up pulling the pin and sort of three quarters of the way through my degree and got a, got, went, got a real job. And it was just sort of, you know, as soon as I got a real job, I was like, I'm out. I'm sort of, once I had that sort of factory and structure, things like that, it was gold. And then it was, would have been it was 2010 i i was married young like i said had two kids we were everything 
pick advances. We, we, I'm, as you say, I should be happy. But yeah, seeing emails, text message, start of social media, everyone I went to uni with, they're, they're in Europe, they're doing whatever they do. Actually, when you're 26, 27, just poking around, backpacking, things like that. And I, and I went down a hole and I, and I did. And my wife's like, what are you? I'm like, and I, no, this is, this is crap. There's something wrong with me. I, why am I? And I booked myself, or my wife booked me in, I'll be honest, to go see someone. When I went and seen someone, I sort of, yeah, had depression, but they diagnosed me with ADD and they just shook their head and they said, so you got through school? And I went, yeah, what do I pay you? And they're like, no, you shouldn't have, shouldn't have done that. And I was like, okay, well, I did. And how'd you go at uni? It's like, oh, I lasted two and a half years out of a three-year degree and probably needed another 12 months, 18 months to finish it off. And they're like, you shouldn't have got there. You shouldn't have, you should have been like six months in and been kicked out the door because you just, your brain just doesn't think that way. And I was like, what do you do now? Did this right around? I said, oh, I, would you like to be, how, how would you like to be medicated? By I was like, oh. At that stage, it was like, oh, only naughty kids have ADD and all that's just, and that stigma around it. And I was like, oh, uh, my wife's like just looking at me going, you need to do something. And I was, I, I started on medication and it was just a change. It was the world is just clearer and it's from that point on it's just like i'm really good at this and it life just seemed to like time slows as stupid as it sounds stuff gets organized everything falls into its spot and where i would be sitting there and my wife was just like i, I watched you in the paddock and you just you'll be doing a job and you'll be fixing a fence and then you'll just stop and then you'll start it again and it's just like no, I wasn't. She's like, yeah. And I was like, okay. So those, and I'm so, so blessed to have my wife. <laughs> she's, she's awesome. From that day on, yeah, it's just been completely different. And I just, yeah, it is, it is what it is. And it's like depression. It's a chemical imbalance in your brain and you can't do anything about it. Because since then, and I think what we, we can start to talk to is kind of your involvement. And I'll say you're a huge advocate and in talking about mental health and mental health well-being and, and everything mm. affiliated to that was it even on your radar kind of before you had your own little challenge with the ADD like it, it just it just wasn't and it just one of those things and it was just like to fall into those those dark places but you just don't see the light and then you come out of them you're like I was down there because I had an imbalance it's a simple thing and like it was a bit of I I did a lot of oh, it's gonna sound a bit out there and hippiness but yeah like i did meditation and hypnosis and things like that and they just straightened me out and just sort of cleared my mind and got me more focused and things like that so so yes yeah, so i come i come through that in what was that yeah 2010 and then it was in 2000 i'm trying to think now be 17 no, I, I, I want to interrupt you because i know yeah, you right. said no you're saying oh it sounds hippiness etc cetera, etc cetera. but i i love i love it I don't actually, well, I've done meditation a couple of times and um, it was actually bloody good. It's freaking hard, but what, what is it? Like, it's another thing we've got a stigma attached to it, but like, what does meditation actually mean for you? I didn't go kicking and screaming, but it was not far from it. My wife said, see this thing, this, how do you reckon this would go? And I tried anything once and I went there and I was like, it's like sports psychology. We did that when we were at uni and like had uh, sports like come from, UQ and Brisbane and come and talk to the football team. And it's just like, we have an unfair advantage and everyone else that doesn't know this stuff. And so I, I knew that, that like how the, when you get your brain properly dialed in, it just 
changes everything. And I was like, right, right. And I come back and I was he's like, oh, sit on, sit on the chair here, mate. I'm going to play. It wasn't Wow songs and Inyo. It was something else. But yeah, it was... Uh, it um and it just like re-centered you and just sort of I was like left there and it felt like I'd slept for three days and I was like this stuff is magic and I just I don't know the science it was just like push your big endorphin button and just like oh life's good just keep rolling so it those sort of skills that you build that way and it, you you see stories on the news of people that had cancer and they they beat it because they don't want to die and things like that and their brain and their body heals and people that give diagnosis of a broken neck and there's like yes there's probably something going under going on other than just the belief of the mind and everything fixing it but i think like you see i don't know what the numbers are what, like they talk about like you're going to use like 10 percent of your brain properly and all this sort of stuff and the rest of it is unknown for what it does and it's yeah i think if you can get your head right and it's, it's just finding that little bit of happiness and joy somewhere. And it oh. just, yeah, just go, oh, like patting puppies and stuff like that. It's just a full reset. But I reckon that many people I talk to who do it and they'll swear by it kind of religiously. It's their, it's the way they start their day. Oh. They would be some of the most, I'll say, in touch, high-performing, got their stuff together, individuals who are just content as well. So oh. I think there's a superpower in it, as you say. It's uh, it an is. unfair and, advantage to the rest of them. And and that's that's the thing. I, I I think that there's a lot to be said about just being happy within yourself and not trying to keep up with the Joneses. And it's all like I know they're all cliches and things like that. But I you look at and you go, yeah, we're pretty privileged. We live in Australia. Period. So that puts you a, a, above a lot of the world population. Then. I work in a job that I don't call work. So I'm ticking a few more boxes there. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, you, you do those little checks to what makes, what makes you unhappy. And if you can get them out of your life or minimize the angst that they give you, it, yeah, I, I don't know. Probably no good for your podcast because I'm an art too much old, but it, it's, it's one of those things that when you think about it, I find that, if I'm having a crap day, and this is going to sound stupid, nah, I have an Xbox 360 that has games that I buy from cash converters for a dollar that I just get on there and just just numb out. And it is just, it's just a reset. And it's just like, and it, I, I was listening to something the other day and someone said, when I'm having a bad day, I watch reruns of Friends because I know that that just takes me back to a happier place or something like that. It's just a reset where I don't have to think. And it's just like, it's just something that I can do. And it's just like switch off. Don't have to worry about anything else. Uh, but like if you, and then when I'll, I'll get days that I'll have a crap day at work and you sort of got clients yelling at you and things like that, where oh, I'm not yelling at you, but you like feel you've let them down and you sort of have a look at it and you go, have I communicated that this is happening? Like, yes. Is there anything more I could have done about this situation? And if there's yes, okay, well, what can I have done? Can I have fixed it already? And you're like, okay, I can. I can do this and we can fix the problem. If there's nothing, you've just got to be able to park it and be happy that you've done everything you can because if you can have a conversation with a client, like in the last couple of years through the drought and flood, that's the sort of fertilizers what it is. And it's like, guys, I can't do anything about it. And if you take that home every night and go, I feel like I'm ripping my farmers off. Well, you're not doing anything that's 
negligent or anything like that. So yes, you've just got to be able to park those situations. In those dry years, that's where yeah, we, that mental health thing sort of come back onto my radar was when it started to dry out. And Imbo Desert, our big clients are 2,000 acres. And there's very few of them and the rest of like this paddock of barley I'm sitting in be lucky to be 50 acres and it's a, a good stand for this area so you've got a lot of clients you're having a lot of conversations and where my colleagues that might be out of the downs they might have two clients that would cover the same amount of area that my whole scenic rim does and it's like so there's a lot more client interaction and when it's dry and you go into dairy farmers and not getting paid for their milk as much as they probably should and they're now paying 400 bucks for barley that was only 200 bucks last year. And you can see they're down. And, I was, and it's just like, you sort of forget about the whole sales thing. It's, it's more of a, a long-term play and it's sort of like, oh, what can we do for you? Is there, can we offer you extended terms? Is there something we can do in your system to make it cheaper? Is it, and a lot of my dairy farmers that we deal with, and a lot of any farmer that is sort of in those positions, it's like, I've got three dollars eighty to spend on your seed. I usually spend five. Is there something that we can get the same value out of putting that same amount of money into the crop? And that's sort of the bit that I really get a kick out of is sort of helping people achieve their goals on a budget and sort of looking after them at the same time. I just don't think that we spend enough with our clients or take into our clients, yeah. Tell me about, I'm, I'm intrigued, the, you're the, as you said earlier on, you're the chair of the Elders Wellbeing Committee. What is it and, and why is it important to, to you, but also not just you and kind of the broader business? Like any business, I think your, your biggest asset is your people. So you've always got to look after them as best you can. And if you've got to replace staff because they're getting burnt out and things like that, well, you've, you're not doing your job as a employer. So the wellbeing committee was set up by elders and we it's done by employees. It's not done by the corporate side of it. So it's the committee's made up of two from every state pretty much. And it is just facilitated by one of the uh, couple of the HR team. So we meet and we sort of bring in the work around the pillars of mental health. 2000, a couple of years ago, I, I started when it was dry. We started Mental Health Mondays where I traded in the traditional um, elders pink shirt for a what was then a pink tiger print trademark shirt, which I'll give you the tip. On the first day I wore it, it was like, what the bloody hell have you got on? And I was like, they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's Mental Health Mondays. I'm starting it up. This is how it's going to roll. I said, it's, I hate coming here. And I hate everyone kicking their boots and bloody digging dust and not knowing where next pay packet's coming from, next, next crop's going to roll in and all this sort of stuff. And I said, if I turn up and you laugh at me, and even say once a week, I feel good about myself. But if you you now know and outward expressing that I'm here for your mental health and I wish to, if you have a problem, I, I can't solve everything, but I can know how to put you in touch and with the people that you need to see. And there's a couple of files oh and then you by the end of it it's like yeah i had a, i had oh, i had a couple of shit years at such and such and they all open up i thought you were the bloke that had it together and it's just so common that everyone sort of goes no, this is a good thing i mean and it's i love the are you okay day sort of concept but it 
once a year is probably not enough for mental health of my liking. So we roll it out once a, once a week on a Monday. Uh, Toowoomba does Friday because they have sale on Monday. But there's a couple of branches that jumped on board with it. And it, yeah, when you get new clients walk in and everyone's got not the pink shirt on, oh, and it just strikes that conversation. And I think it shows that it's not the us and them. It's the, well, I am, I'm on, I'm on the, the ride with you through thick and thin, whatever. Found is there's very, very blurred lines between when you're, when you're a client and when you're part of the community as well. So there's this crossover. So a lot of the clients that I deal with now, I've either, I've either played football with or played football for. My wife's played netball with or against and sort of you become part of the community so it's more than like i said before it's pink shirt means more just you're the oldest man it's uh i'm part of the community so it's a sort of a second prong that sort of on elders like for australian ag for the community i think we're running at the moment our slogans and i think it's quite true that elders has always been around and sort of been part of the community and i guess support through beyond blue blind doctors and sort of the other sort of things that we support they're they're very community based and is that something that grew from your little action to now being elders national like nationwide oh i'd I'd like to think that it is but i think it's i when i took over chairman i sort of when i was asked to be on the committee my first question was is this a corporate tick and flick to say that we've done something for mental health because if it is i'm out yeah and they they assured me that it wasn't no turned up for the first meeting we had a few people that didn't turn up and i found the first email that was sent out to say everyone the date and i clicked reply all typed in there can we just you've asked to be on this committee can we show it some respect and turn up for meetings and everything like this and i hit the send and 10 minutes later phone rings and it's malcolm hunt off the board and i'm like hello malcolm and i'm thinking just done career suicide and he just said to me straight out he said love what you're doing mate keep it going i won't be there on thursday you just keep up and mate and run it like a chain he said this this is what i want to see and i was like oh, thank god and i'm just like i was honest i was like god i son how quick can you pack up your bag and get out of the office and he's like no 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 he said this is what i want to say he said this is i put my name against it and i um I, I support it. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see it run like this and sort of hold everyone accountable. And I was like, okay, this is, this is going somewhere because it's, yeah. When you get it, when you've got a, a board, board member that's backing it, it sort of, yeah, it makes a, it makes a statement. And then when they call you, I don't think I would be on Malcolm's <laughs> Christmas card list, but it's um, yeah. He, he took the time to ring me and shows that it, it's important to him and it's important to, me so yeah it was really really good that's really that's really special and I, I can only imagine what it was like in that call i've got a question which i ask everyone and i'm i'm interested in what you come up with for it but in terms of you you've done a bunch of things since you were in the seats of a year 10 student but if you get the chance to go down and talk to them about careers in agriculture what would be your message to year 10 students today so at the boat as it show we have Agate on a what is now Thursday, usually the first day of the show, but it's, and it's been running for 20 years, and I've probably been involved with it probably eight. And it's we get all the kids come in, and they're primary school up to the high school kids. And because we're in southeast Queensland, it's very, very strange the amount of people that don't know what 
an agronomist is because it's not a cool trendy job which i think it's starting to become ag starting to become a little bit more cooler than other industries at the moment but we had our last ones in september and i had a couple of the, the grade 10 grade 11 kids that were sort of like looking at career choices and things like that. and the two young girls come and said oh where can we what can we do and where, what jobs are available within elders and i rattled off everything and like like, like the whole tech space of farming and things like that is is an industry that's just taking off and these kids are like oh my god this is i just thought it was just all crops and looking after cows so it doesn't matter where you come into the industry i think there's always opportunity i'm prime example of someone that started probably in the not in the bottom but yeah in the sort of opening ranks of working at elders to where i am now and it's if you're happy to work in ag i think yeah you can you can end up in a lot of incredible places Fantastic. Well, mate, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, parking up in the side of the paddock and pushing people away to, to have a chat to us. <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed our chat. Look, and yeah, I reckon... Thanks. Thanks. I, it, no, I've seen, I've seen who you've had on and yeah, it's pretty, you're pretty humbling to ring the lagro for a bow desert after you've talked to some of the people you've talked to. It's yeah. It's, yeah. Thank you. No, mate. Thank you for coming on. I think that's the thing with agriculture. It's there is this kind of the doors open and the guards down in terms of people. Everyone's approachable if you're uh, willing and curious, and everyone has something unique about them. And I love the work that you're doing in that mental health and awareness space, and can't wait to see where it's where it's going. We might even see some some uh, funky coloured waiters. What do you reckon? I'll have to send you an update of your moustache for November. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, I'll, I'll flick you a link. <laughs> so it'll be, it'll be worthwhile. We've got a couple of weeks left in our Movember campaign. And if you're keen on getting involved or supporting those humans of agriculture that are growing a mow, moving and shaking and everything else in between this Movember, we'd love to hear from you. I think a huge part of our Movember campaign is really about sharing stories. Um, getting people's perspective over why they're involved in Movember and why men's health, particularly in rural Australia, is something which we really need to start to prioritise. Thanks for tuning in. Can't wait to see you again next week. Look after yourselves. Stay safe, stay sane. Remember, keep smiling. See ya. See ya.